Hi, uh, welcome to episode 10 of Uncommonly Common Conversations. Uh, tonight's episode is Christopher Nolan, The Millennials Could Brick. Uh, tonight we are joined by Matt and Johannes. Uh, do you guys want to say hi? How you doing? I'm Matt, uh, car enthusiast, also do a podcast and high school teacher. Thanks, Matt. And Johannes? And yes, uh, my name is Johannes or Joe. Um, I'm a tech hat, very much excited and uh, about anything to do with technology, but also a movie buff, hence my excitement for tonight's episode. Lovely. Well, um, ordinarily, we'd probably spend the first few minutes of this podcast sort of catching up on how things are going, but there is nothing I, uh, all any of us could say that is more interesting than this article that I'm about to read to us. So uh, strap yourselves in because we're going to find out about the sordid past of the third Nolan brother. So just for context, uh, Christopher Nolan has a brother called Jonathan Nolan, who's responsible for Westworld and a number of other properties and has co-written a number of things for Christopher Nolan. But there is an older brother uh, called, uh, is it Matthew Nolan, who uh, has a more sordid past. So uh, let me just read this out. According to court records, in or around 2004, Robert Bresker accused his accountant, Robert Cohen, of stealing approximately $7 million from his bank accounts. Cohen counted that it was his Costa Rica business partner, Mario Quintana, who had stolen Bresker's money. Not long after, Quintana turned up dead. The official account was that Quintana had committed suicide, but Cohen feared something more sinister. Meanwhile, Bresca remained fixated on the idea that Cohen had his money at that retrieving it was still a possibility. At this point, Matthew Nolan entered the picture. Bresca introduced him to Cohen under the fake name of Matthew McCall Oppenheimer, an heir to the Oppen- Oppenheimer Diamond Fortune, a timeline of the suspect travel. On March 6, 2005, Robert Cohen seems to have taken a meeting with Matthew Oppenheimer, a.k.a. Matthew Nolan, in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica. Also present was Louis Alonso Douglas Mayer, a, a hotel bellboy allegedly conspiring with Nolan. Video evidence proffered in court purports to show that Nolan and Major with Cohen in the parking lot of a San Jose shopping center the last time Cohen was seen alive. Hours later, Nolan was on a plane to Houston, Texas. Again, per court records, within three days, he was back in Costa Rica, where he was once again met up with Major, who was holding Robert Cohen captive. On March 10th, Costa Rican authorities discovered Cohen's dead body. He appeared to have perished from organ failure, stemming from severe beatings and torture. The next day, Nolan left the country once again. The aftermath of the Robert Cohen killings. Louise Alonso Douglas Mayer was convicted of Cohen's murder by Costa Rican court and sentenced to jail. Meanwhile, Nolan, as would later be disclosed by an American judge, continued his efforts to locate Robert Bresca's money. Nolan spent the next four years as a free man, but in 2009, he and his wife failed for, filed for bankruptcy. He was trapped by FBI agent Pablo Araya, who had been investigating the Cohen murder and discovered Nolan was due to attend his own bankruptcy hearing in Chicago. He was arrested and taken into custody. Following his arrest in 2009, Nolan was formally charged with Cohen's murder in Costa Rica. Costa Rica requested that Nolan be extradited to stand trial in their court system. While an American judge reviewed Nolan's case, he was confined to Metropolitan Corrections Center in downtown Chicago. At this point, his story took another twist. Matthew Nolan's attempted prison break. 
the judge overseeing <laughs> Nolan's oh, case did not find sufficient evidence to extradite him to Costa Rica. The Costa Rican authorities abandoned their request in 2010 and Nolan could have walked free at that point, but he'd already been arrested the second time. The charge? Trying to break out of the Metropolitan Correction Center. In the fall of 2009, Nolan was found with what NBC Chicago reported as a razor, a harness, a metal clip to unlock handcuffs, and a 31-foot, 9.4 meters of rope made from bed sheets. He pleaded guilty to possessing contraband in jail and obstruction to justice. In July of 2010, Nolan was sentenced to 14 months in prison for his somewhat Batman-like escape attempt. Matthew Nolan today. Matthew Nolan was never extradited to Costa Rica. In 2014, he sued the United States, accusing the Bureau of Prisons of physical, psychological, and psychiatric injury during this time in the Metropolitan Correction Center. The case dragged on for several years, and its final outcome appears to be hidden from public record. To no one's surprise, Matthews Nolan remains unaffiliated with his brother's filmmaking career. Mate, come on. Like, if, if not already, turn that shit into a script and give it to Christopher. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I want to see that movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Nolan family, interesting. <laughs> that, that, um, honestly, it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it sounds like um, it sounds it sounds like espionage mixed with um, mixed with MacGyver, mixed with mixed with just just complete weird timing, and it's you know this is actually uh, <laughs> this should this should be a movie. They should make a movie on his exploits. It's it's quite hilarious. <laughs> Uh, the screenplay is already there. Right, it writes itself. It writes itself. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Wow. Yeah. Throw in a couple of time paradoxes that you know Christopher likes to play around with in his movies, and you put yourself a slip. Get Cillian Murphy to play his brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Michael Caine, of course. Michael Caine must be. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so um, anyway, sorry that was just uh, too good, too good not to share with you guys. So how's everyone been for last? How's everyone been for the last week? Anything interesting happening? Uh, just final, finishing up work this week. That's coming. Um, been working on my on my on my little little car. It's almost ready to go in for a roadworthy check and hopefully be on the road. Um, what else have I been up to? Playing a lot of Zelda. Still, still working, working through it and really enjoying that game it's i mean we talked about it last week but it's just it's it's brilliant um and that's been that's pretty massive isn't it oh yeah dude it's just it's just it took everything that was good about breath of the wild and just took it to 11 like it's just yeah, right. just just yeah um so <clears throat> it's really really good enjoying it um what else have i been up to i think that's pretty much it on my end what about you guys oh look for me it's just Lots of work. Um, just came back from the yes, from one of a like you could call it a field trip. About to take off again, actually, to uh, Europe, um, and in between, just sort of yeah, being oh, a dad. So what are you flying off to Europe? Yeah, um, actually, it's Bali first. So Bali is sort of a semi-business trip that starts on uh, Thursday night, yep. and then we come back. We're going to be here for a couple of days, and then it's immediately off to to Europe. Yeah, lovely. Three weeks straight. Oh, three weeks. Yep. That's going to be fun. Are you, you, you going to be back in time to take us to Oppenheimer, Johannes? Because you know you're my IMAX connection. 
That's what I'm, oh yes, now literally as we were speaking sort of before when you said Oppenheimer's around the corner, when is that? I think it's mid-May, uh, is it, uh, mid-July. Is yeah, mid-July, yeah. I, so, I have missed this. No, so you better make sure you're back because I'm very, you, you organize our IMAX tickets. I'm going to be very disappointed yeah, if you're well, working in Europe. That's a, that's a, not a good scheduling on your part. I'll have to fly back just for that. There's no, no such thing as IMAX anywhere but Melbourne for me, honestly. Everything else is Limax. Yeah, that, that IMAX, is Limax. Melbourne and only Melbourne, honestly. So yeah, I'll be here. Yeah, I'll be here for sure. I might, I might actually clip that, Johannes. We'll see if we can get IMAX to retweet that for us, and maybe for us <laughs> some free tickets with that type <laughs> of endorsement. You'd be, you'd be surprised. Actually, that's actually something worth sharing. It didn't happen last week, but a few weeks ago, I just very randomly came across them uh, screening again after sort of, I think it was been months since the last screening, uh, Interstellar. Yeah. And I literally just on a whim decided, why not? Let's just go. Um, it starts in a few hours, buy a ticket, be done. The whole thing was fully booked, by the way. Yeah. It was a 15, 70 millimeter film screening. And then it turns out as the movie started that the bloody projector broke. Oh. So there was no audio, which means at some point the projectionist came out and basically said, Hey, we're going to have to play the digital, the, the 4k laser version. Everyone just like started freaking out there. Literally one couple said, I, I've, come here from sydney just to watch this bloody screening tonight and that is because i said before like imax in melbourne is something special we can talk about that uh, at another day but that is shortly thereafter everyone complained and then everybody got a free ticket that they can use for whatever movies uh, on the horizon so i think i might just use that for uh, oppenheimer thanks oh, for the reminder lovely lovely i'm glad um but i haven't really been up to too much i've kind of i, I watched um bullet train last week actually which i really dug that that was a, a lot better than i anticipated it would be um so i kind of right. yeah i kind of like being a dad as well too it took me two days to watch it um because you know that's just being a dad um yeah. and yeah probably that just i played a i played a lot of zelda last week um as well since last week's discussion so i spent i think last monday and tuesday just sort of plowing some hours into that and starting starting to get me i'm really really digging it um yeah, that's that's kind of been about it. I started watching um, The Last Dance again on Netflix. I kind of just wanted something like an unlock wine thing. So I'm watching the Michael Jordan basketball thing again, which yeah, that's cool, whatever. And um, nice. still reading Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T. Lawrence, which has taken me uh, eleven years to read. Um, yeah, because it's it's it's. I'm not, have you you've seen um, Lawrence of Arabia, Johannes? years and years and years ago i mean that that film is five hours something right yeah that's um like that's like i one of my like my probably my top three arguably probably my top favorite my all-time favorite film was lawrence of arabia um and yeah right. seven pills of wisdom is, is sort of like t lawrence's autobiography that's based off it but it's um it's got that sort of like weird like it's part history part memoir part philosophy part pseudo bedouin sexual fantasy part Jesus. like it, it goes in like weird weird tangents because like it'd be always a weird thing where, like you can't be like talking and he'll spend like 30 pages describing different forms of the desert and then all of a sudden he'll do like one highly specific elongated prose of like one and a half pages describing like the muscular body of like the 14 year old bedouin boy that is like kind of his slave but also not his slave it's a bit weird and then it sort of goes back into like british imperial politics so it's an it's an interesting interesting dense read um and also matt like the, the arabs are just hilarious in this because it's um they're just like uh basically um their enemies are the turks but their real enemies are their neighbors and so 
And so um, the Turks sometimes take second priority to their neighbors. Yeah, yeah. And there's um, they end up. Uh, there's like one German in the whole thing so far. Johannes is like some poor sergeant that got sent out to like the middle of Arabia to dig a well. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's somehow represented. <laughs> yeah. But um, there. Yeah, so that's that's good. What we have for the last week or so. Um. All right, guys, shall we, uh, shall we jump into tonight's discussion? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Um, so I've kind of titled tonight's discussion, uh, Christopher Nolan, the next millennials, Kubrick. Um, and, you know, when I sort of talk about Kubrick, I'm kind of more referring to sort of that, that larger-than-life cinematic style that, you know, that people remember his films more than they remember what's in the films. And kind of what I mean by that is like no one's ever sort of accusing Kubrick of being like the best prose writer, but everyone remembers that Kubrick did incredible things with camera work and the what he was able to evoke from a cinema perspective is, you know, it's literally the Kubrickian is literally a description for high quality cinema. Um, and so what I kind of wanted to sort of discuss tonight is just a series of things around Christopher Nolan and kind of just to sort of, you know, it, think about him from kind of what his legacy is going to be and we're in a we're in an interesting perspective where you know over the last 18 odd years we've had just movie after movie that is almost defines the millennial cinema experience like i don't know a single millennial alive with the exception of apparently sam who hasn't actually watched every you know every um christopher nolan film and so I, I thought we might just kick this off just by sort of doing something a bit broad and I might just ask you guys sort of, you know, each, you know, what is your favorite Christopher Nolan film and why is it your favorite? Mm, it's a good like, question. Like, it's, um, so, Johannes, you go, you go. No, 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 you, you start it. I'll let you go first. Um, it's a hard one because he's got some really, really, you know, really, really good movies. Obviously, he's, you know, we're talking about him for, for that reason. Um <clears throat> Hard to put a, a favorite for me, for one. Um, obviously, like The Dark Knight Rises is, is an absolute classic. Um, Inception, I, I, I did enjoy. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, well. To be fair, that the whole that whole Batman kind of trilogy uh, that 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 he did was 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 good. All of them, all of them were 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 really good. Um, uh, the last one I saw from him was Tenant. Um, which I ended up seeing at the cinemas, and I walked away with that a bit confused. But then it, it, it was alright. Um, uh, it was it was very you know, very him, but I think he just took himself to like eleven. But but yeah, I've I've been a I've been a fan of his of his work. Um, I he's got he's got the new movie coming out, which you guys just mentioned earlier. Um, so I'd be, be keen to see that. Uh, but yeah, like, overall, I, I think I think the how he how he did that. That Batman trilogy for me was 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 really really good, um, and yeah, I'm 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 a big big fan big fan of Nolan. Thanks, good one. Um, yeah, go. No, no, you're on the show. You're up, man. No, I think um, you made a you made a good point there because when it comes to Christopher Nolan films, for me, it is very difficult to just pick a single one. Not because they're all good or bad or whatever, just because he plays with genres. He yeah. heavily plays with, he plays with genres. So you've got you know, Dunkirk, you know, you've got sort of like that war setting and then you've got something like Interstellar, you know, total opposite, um, you know, science fiction and all that. You've got um, Inception, you've got some of his noir films in the in the beginnings, you've got bloody superheroes in there, you know, you've got the Dark Knight trilogy. So that is where 
if you were to ask me within a particular genre, you know, what would you prioritize? I could possibly give you an answer. Other than that, I would probably go with a, um, I guess, Inception for me is sort of something that still lingers with me for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, it is something that regardless of genre, I would watch this in a heartbeat over and over just because of uh, how good I think it really is, you know, when it comes to the storyline, the ideas, dream within a dream, the score, absolutely amazing as well. Uh, sort of with, with that film in particular, everything just flows. Everything just comes together. That is where I feel he is at his best. Of course, you could argue, you know, The Dark Knight, it's an instant classic, and I'm specifically talking about The Dark Knight, not The Dark Knight Rises or Batman Begins. Both have the pros and cons, but The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger and whatnot, absolutely phenomenal performance. I think you know nothing really comes close when it comes to the superhero genre in general. Uh, but I would probably still rank Inception um, above that. But that's very a, a very subjective thing for me. It's not necessarily because it is objectively I don't know you know better made, better produced you know, better special effects or whatever. It's none of that. It's it's literally just because it resonated. I watched it at a time in my life where I think it was just sort of something that blew me away uh, from from a storyline point of view, from, you know, the actors in it, um, the, the the way he sort of put it all together. I think it also introduced me a lot to himself, but also then other directors from there onwards, you know, playing with timelines and, and, and sort of embedding different narratives um, in, into a singular timeline. And so this is something that, um, yeah, just stands out for me. So yeah, Inception is probably something I'd just, uh, settle down on. I'd probably have to agree with Inception actually, because I mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm a couple of years, well, we're a couple of years younger than you, Johannes, but I distinctly remember Inception coming out when I just turned 18 and I was my mm. first year at uni. And I remember that was like, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff you know, when you first start university and it's not, you know, you're becoming an adult. It's not, it's not that sort of cliche, but you know, what you sort of knew in high school is becoming increasingly irrelevant. And so you're having to try to learn, you know, there's, there's new things about life that you need to learn and you need to get across. And I remember um, becoming a lot more attuned to the difference between movies and film, uh, sorry, movies and yeah, well, movies and films. And that kind, you yeah. know, it's an arbitrary distinction, but you know, you, I would, you know, I would classify that, you know, at the time, Iron Man was a movie, but The Dark Knight was a film. It's something mm. where there's sort of like an artistic maturity to the subject that you know can divide between the two. And I distinctly recall that Inception blew me away so much so that you know I remember watching it four times. Um, when it was in right. cinema and I remember, you know, I remember going on a date there and I absolutely no interest in her. I was just watching the movie. I was so engrossed <laughs> in it. And um, I also distinctly recall that like the film was, um, you know, it's, it's not that it's, it's not that it's more complicated than it, than it appears because I, I, I think that it's one of those films where, and this is kind of goes into Christopher Nolan to an extent, which is probably what I like to talk about next is that, there's a lot of interpretation that Christopher Nolan deliberately leaves in his films. And I think that Inception kind of sets a tone for your interpretation of Inception can drastically change that movie and what the outcome of that film actually means. And there's a number of films in this list. And, you know, I think that Tenon is probably the other one that's worth talking about where depending on sort of what preconception you're coming into it with drastically changes what that film is actually about and what it means. And so, I mean, I mean, without more or less going into the genre though, I probably want to just touch on one other point, which is that, you know, Christopher Nolan's filmmaking style and what makes it unique. Um, and from my perspective, I think that 
Nolan is unique in the way he plays with time in his films and the way that he uses, you know, the, the art form of the linear film and he manages to flow time within that linear format. And he does that in a way that I think is better than almost every other director. Um, in fact, I think that Dennis, uh, Dennis Villeneuve, well, help me out, Johannes. Thank you. I'm sorry. I don't have your uh, I don't have your European enunciation skills. Um, I know. I know. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the Dennis V. Um, I don't think that he. I, I think that he's probably the only other director that kind of springs to mind that has managed to sort of play with time as effectively as Nolan has. Mm-hmm. I agree, and um, and I think that is exactly what you know, it's one of the standout features and not necessarily every single one of his movies. Um, he, he, he definitely plays with time. And I don't think there's not a single movie where he doesn't, uh, but some movies are a lot more grounded uh, and straightforward. Whereas in other films, he uses time as the central narrative, essentially for him. And you know, there's Memento, for example, which is something that I actually, I, I really like that movie. It's been years and years since I last watched it. So I can't really go too much in depth or into detail. But the way that is set up and, you know, him basically just playing back the entire movie backwards, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, who does that? You know, especially at the time when that came out. And and I think, you know, if I, if I remember correctly, I read at the time, you know, that he actually, like him and his team, they, they, they designed the entire film, the narrative. It was basically chronologically put together and then, and then, and then he reversed it in hindsight. He knew that he wanted to do that, but for him to actually get that dramatic effect, he needed to make sure that if he were to basically watch it the other way around, it all makes sense and it all stacks up. And I think that is the effort, that, that, that attention to detail that a lot of other directors don't get right. It's all about, you know, time travel this and, you know, something just happens and you just, you know, suspension of disbelief, you just have to go with it. But with Christopher Nolan's films, I think he tries hard and sometimes he fails, don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. Definitely. He's definitely failed. Yeah, like, <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly right. No, 100%. That's actually one thing I wanted to say as well, quickly before we move on. I mean, I, I really like his films, but I know full, like, I'm very aware that he's not a perfect director. There's a few stinkers in, in his portfolio. Um, I think, I mean, then again, I kind of comes goes without saying that pretty much any director, you know, you can go to Steven Spielberg, you know, a third of his movies are probably average at best. I don't think there's a single, you know, even Martin Scorsese. It's a harsh one to say about Schindler's List, Johannes. Well, come on. <laughs> Not necessarily that, but uh, you know, these days it feels as though it's a different topic again. But like, you know, bloody Steven Spielberg, he just, I don't know, he, he he's obviously past his prime and he, he just throws films out there these days. But um, with Christopher Nolan, I think there's at least, like he, he tries, genuinely tries to do something mm. different every single time he releases something new. And Oppenheimer, at this point in time, I have no idea how that's going to play out because it's seemingly... Like the events we kind of are already aware about, it's not something sort of mysterious, you know, like Inception or Interstellar. It doesn't have any sci-fi aspects to it. And it also makes me wonder how he's going to really play with time there. I mean, the trailers already allude to that being a thing again, you know, with the click, like the, 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 the TikTok sounds and the trailers and whatnot. But so, um, so, what, yeah, I, so what I do know about Oppenheimer is that it's, it is based off um, a biography I've called Oppenheimer. Um, but the film is, it's less to do about playing with time and more to do about playing with perspective. And so right. the film, and again, I don't think this is a spoiler because they've kind of been talking about this pretty openly in the previews, but um, 
the film is partly in color, partly in black and white. And the scenes that are in color are from Oppenheimer's subjective perspective. And the scenes that are in black and white are from the sort of history's objective perspective. And so I think that's kind of what he's sort of the, 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 the mechanism he's trying to pull into Oppenheimer. Fun fact, um, those black and white sequences, they actually devised a brand new IMAX camera format just for that. You'd oh, really? Basically just, yeah, yeah you'd, you'd think he basically just shot the film and then he, you know, certain scenes are in black and white, but little did I know that he actually came up with a brand new concept that has to do with framing faces and, you know, like creating depth of field and, you know, like that illusion of literally sitting in front of somebody, even though and if you think about IMAX, you know, it's all about, you know, grandeur, yeah. you know, like massive screens and whatnot. Like, why would you want to do a close-up shot of someone's face on an IMAX screen that's like 20 meters wide. But I think that, and that is where they then went to town essentially and devised a new camera format um, well, that was then used almost exclusively for the black and white scenes. But that's just a fun fact. Well, they did that imagine, with... Imagine how much, sorry, sorry, imagine how much pull you have with the companies that you can just be like, oh, I feel like making a new camera for this, for this right. movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, I mean, he's... This is nuts. I, I think if I was IMAX, I would be partly co-funding Nolan movies to be perfectly honest mm -hmm. like he's done more for that format than I think any other director has um like ever actually he I think Nolan is probably one of the people that's single-handedly keeping IMAX going as a medium yeah. but I mean, he did something yeah, right, similar yeah. with um Dunkirk as well with the Spitfires so he yeah. um he basically created like a like a almost a periscope for the IMAX cameras so that the cameras were physically outside the cockpits and then they were kind yeah. of shooting into the cockpits using mirrors um yeah yeah it was highly technical i oh, loved yeah. watching the, behind the scenes of that film even if you have absolutely nothing else to say about that movie watch the behind the scenes it's pretty insane and, and i just think it's probably just worth noting as well too that i think that like dunkirk for me is like a 4.5 5 out of 5 movie like that is i i adore dunkirk but i don't think it's his best film and so when we talk about like the christopher nolan catalog you know even okay Maybe maybe we do talk about Tenet quickly. And, well, actually, we could talk about Tenet in the next one with genre exploration. But even his films, which are weak, are still brilliant movies in what they've either technically achieved or they're brilliant movies in the sense that he took risks that didn't pan out. But you've got to still commend him for taking those risks. And I might just sort of segue into this next one around genres. And... You know, a lot of directors like Spielberg would be a good example. I don't think Spielberg he he does different genre films, but a lot of Spielberg films are similar storylines. A lot of them are variations of Hero's Journey, or a lot of them are very sort of safe three act movies that they might be in different genres. And obviously, he's you know it's not for everything, but. With a Spielberg film, you kind of know what you're going to get with it. And I think a lot of directors, when you're sort of looking at the director, uh, you sort of know what you're going to get when you when you go to one of their films. With Nolan, it's so... You, you've got to hand it to him, his ability to just completely reinvent himself each time he does something. And so like, it might just be worth sort of just, I'm just going to read out just a couple of his films just so I can probably give an example of where I think this is the most telling. But you had Memento in 2000, you had Insomnia 2002, then you had Batman Begins, which is arguably, that was before the Marvel 
MCU. You know, so when you look at Batman Begins from a genre perspective, comic book movies were not in a good place in the early 2000s. Um, the only other stuff that was sort of around that period were the um, the X Men movies and Spider Man. So, yeah. so you didn't have you didn't. This was like you know, arguably Batman Begins kicked off the the comic book resurgence. You then had the Prestige, which is a psychological noir magician movie set in 19th century England. Then you have yeah, the Prestige is superb. Um, but then you have the Dark Knight, which is yeah. you know. 15 years later, still arguably the best comic book film ever made. And it's the benchmark. It is the benchmark. It is. Everything is still compared to The Dark Knight. And rightly so. Like that movie was just staggeringly well made. Then you have Inception and then you have The Dark Knight Rises. And sort of going from like Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet, and now Oppenheimer. All of those films are completely different. There's no consistency in terms of genre and story type. Uh, like that's that's incredible that he is able to pull that type of differentiation with every film consistently every two to three years. And that's where I would argue actually um, that it wasn't necessarily all his own doing. I mean, obviously he's always. That you have kind of your thing pretty much every department but i think part of his success is very much to do with you know except for that crazy brother <laughs> you know if you, if you consider that jonathan nolan co-writes or produces almost all of his films he's got his wife doing the same i think he's she's been a part of every single one of his movies he, he he's got a solid foundation there he knows exactly who excels in what area and he does, he just lets them go to town and that is where i wouldn't i wouldn't say that you know half the work's done at that point he still is very much putting it all together at the end of the day uh but he very much knows how to use talent and use it wisely even just when it comes to casting you know all of his movies i mean there's you know someone like michael kane obviously that just pops up in pretty much every movie even if it's just a cameo appearance but then you've got very different lead actors in all of these films where you know you 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 wonder you know how how does he make that that, that decision you know from film to film he basically just like goes up and down the, the 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 casting list but he knows exactly who he needs to employ to get that emotion across and that is something that so many other films that have the style lack you know like style over substance essentially um where he also delivers on the substance you know like when when i watch inception and i look at leonardo dicaprio and all these other guys it just like it feels believable. It feels like something that, you know, I want to be a part of that whole universe makes sense because these actors just really know how to portray that. So the screenplay is one thing. It's the actors doing their thing. It's the score, you know, Dark Knight. I'm still getting goosebumps when I hear the Dark Knight theme, you know, those sorts of things he just masterfully crafts and puts together. Um, unlike a lot of other directors. And I think that is where, you know, uh, Reese to your point about superheroes, I, I, I honestly, I mean, that might be a bit of a long shot, but, if it wasn't for the Dark Knight, I don't think MCU would have really kicked off as much as it did in the end, or at least as quickly. Mm. I mean, they very much have their own niche carved out for them now. But I think when it comes to the Dark Knight, that very much set the benchmark and still does set the benchmark. And that helped other superhero films catch on much faster than they otherwise would have. Because as you rightfully said, Spider-Man and whatnot, it's, it still just feels like a comic book. And that very much only attracted you know, a small audience. Whereas the Dark Knight matured that concept, and all of a sudden it was everyone and their mama and their mum that that wanted to, uh, you know, have a piece of that. And I think that is what what makes that film so special. I mean, 
let, let, let's explore the, the superhero component of this. Um, cause I know Matt, you're, you're a fan of the Batman films. Um, yeah. could you make, could you make a counter argument, your highness, that the dark Knight was so good that it actually ruined the potential of a lot of other superhero films that followed it. And, and, and kind of what I mean by that is, you know, if you look at what the DC tried to follow up with, with man of steel and sort of the DC EU expanded universe, that was a total failure. Like that just failed. I mean, the, the latest Flash film, which is arguably the capstone of that entire, you know, Zack Snyder type experiment is apparently either mediocre to terrible depending on what reviews you read of it. But he, Christopher Nolan kind of set a – he set a, he set a, a, a style that – worked specifically for Batman. It didn't work for a lot of other superhero types, but there were a number of others that tried to go that Batman route. And you know, Man of Steel is the is the prime example of that. You know, that's that's co-written by his brother. And and so and it was executive produced by by Nolan. And so like I, I was a bit curious as to sort of like what you know what we think his what the Dark Knight trilogy legacy has actually been on the superhero genre. And whether it's actually helped it or kind of hindered it. Well, I mean, I don't think it's hindered it as per se, but I just think that um, the benchmark was just set so high, and it wasn't just it wasn't just um, the acting in, in the movie. It was just every, everything about it was was about especially specifically the Dark Knight was just it was just textbook. Like it was just it was a perfect film in in a, in a lot of ways, um, and it. And it, and the reason why that movie is so important is because it broke ground for, as you said earlier, you know the uh, the whole comic book comic book movies. Because you're right, comic book movies weren't in a good place. Like like I remember like and, and they weren't coming out every year. They're coming out every few every so often. Uh, now we're getting a, a Marvel movie every two two days. But um, like what made that movie so good? It was what, is that it's it's rewatchable every single time. Is that it, it's it's an immersive experience, and and I think that his movies are very immersive experiences. When when you watch them, like they, you, you get put into that place, and when you get put into a movie, for me, it always makes you feel better because um, it feels like you're actually you're there, you're riding the waves with the characters, you're 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 in you're in you know got their version of Gotham Gotham City. You know, it's it's something that that not many movies can can pull off and for for some reason that with his style he he manages to do it like look ten is not my favorite movie but i i felt like i was immersed in in you know in that in you know in that experience and and i guess that's what they're trying to do trying to immerse you with these other with these other movies but they just they're just not getting they're not they're not hitting the nail on the head and I, and, I, and it's not that it's not for like a trying it's it's not for um it's not for you know their ability i i just think it's I just think it's it comes down to uh, it comes down to how they how they interpret the character and how they and how they they kind of you know really say okay well how can we make this be, you know be the experience that that everybody can 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 be fully into because like I watch a Marvel film now and I'm just like oh whatever like, it, it 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 is what it is but if I, if I watch a Dark Knight um, even the Dark Knight Rises but like uh, or, or or Batman Begins I think was the first one. Um, I'm. I mean, like, yeah, I'm. 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 You are Batman in Gotham City. You. You are just like like a person there, and and that whole that whole immersive experience is just something that you can't you can't write that, and you can't and you can't you know you you can't just just make that happen. It's 
it's uh it's it's a full full like kind of different all different edged edged pronged kind of approach which um which make which make those movies absolute classics and and people say oh it was it was all Heath Ledger I'm like yeah he was he was absolutely freaking phenomenal in it but the um it was it wasn't just him like the 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 whole the the whole way it was done was just was perfect and like you said it was a perfect film race it, it is a perfect film like it, it is it's the benchmark of which all those other films are are um are are, are judged and and I, I I walk out of a movie and and out of a superhero movie and I say yeah it wasn't as good as the Dark Knight like you know it's 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 to, to the point now where like it, like I, I like that movie so much purely for the fact of how brilliant it is but two you know like that experience it very rarely do you get a movie that gives you gives you that that the same immersive experience and movies should be should take you to places they should they should take you to 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 another world um for you to 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 chill out of your your normal everyday life and and be in that be in that in in that moment but um and very few you, films do it and this is a great this is a great example of it so, sorry but, I, I went i blubbered on that's a good but but then you get then you get a follow up which is the dark knight rises and i think that the dark knight rises perfectly encapsulates Christopher Nolan's weaknesses and you know I remember I remember like I I, I was psyched for Dark Knight Rises I, I remember we went out for dinner at I think it was Tin Roof on Killer Road and we were um sorry you this is a very specific reference and then we were um okay. driving to High Point and I was in my um I was in my my was did I have the, the oh God, whatever car I had at that point I think it was still my um my Mazda 323 and we were playing, you know, I had my iPhone 4 plugged in and we were playing like, you know, the the Dark Knight score from like Hans Zimmer and like the Batman, you know, animated series scores. And we were like psyching ourselves up and we were, fuck, like I was so excited. And I remember watching that movie and then walking out and Alan was just like revved up. He was like, yeah, yeah, that was the best. Yeah. You're Nolan did it. You're Bane. You know, like all that sort of shit. And I'm just looking at him. I'm like, that was not good. <laughs> like that yeah. was not a good film. And, and, and what I kind of mean by that is where I think that Nolan, and he did this with Tenet and I think he did this with Interstellar as well. And I know Johannes and I were different on Interstellar, but you know, sometimes he forgets that, you know, his job is to tell a good story. It's not to make a groundbreaking film. And those two can be separate things. And I found like with The Dark Knight, you know, The Dark Knight Rises, this sort of, you know, um, tale of two cities concept that he was trying to do, this sort of French Revolution, you know, Batman having an ending, Bane, you know, not no nothing against. I I thought that you know um the performance of Tom Hardy as Bane was actually superb. Like I think he was the best part of it. But Christopher Nolan did that stuff where you have to suspend belief in order to make this believable, which you didn't need to do with Batman Begins, and you certainly did not need to do it with The Dark Knight. But you need to do it with The Dark Knight Rises, and so then when you kind of look at something like Inception, conceptually there's no, there's nothing in Inception in which the logic gets broken. So you know that it's like, you know what you're getting into with this film. Like you know where the logic's going to go. But for things like, you know, Interstellar and definitely Tenet, yeah, and Dark Knight Rises, you, you, he breaks his own logical consistency in order to make the movies work. 
Uh, I mean, Johannes, do you have any, any thoughts on that? I would actually agree. I mean, look, as you said, with it's a topic or a different discussion there, but when it comes to the the Dark Knight Rises, you you rightfully said, uh, you know, Tom Hardy kind of carried that. And that that is the most memorable thing to me on that in, in that film as well. Uh, I, I know that you know people make a lot of fun of you know the, the voice and how distorted they like. They, I think they went overboard with the distortion there. Yeah. Uh, but regardless of that, like his performance still pulled me in, and that is something that I think um, you mentioned earlier you know even though it was arguably the weakest of that trilogy it still stands out to me as a good enough film to yeah. be immersed in but yes it did break logic to make things work he just really wanted to bang out i don't know a set one set piece after another and and by like by doing it and not necessarily just that like he wanted to use these set pieces to go one step further and i think that is where he started stumbling a bit because yeah, uh, there's, there's sudden, like i don't let me cut you off but just specifically there's a scene in which um Batman in Dark Knight Rises where Batman's being chased by the police and it's after the bank gets robbed and he drives into a car park at like two o'clock in the afternoon and then when he drives out of the car park, it's pitch black. And, like, it's the longest run ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's things like that with Nolan where it's like the, the, the cinematic set piece is taking precedence over... Yeah the logical consistency of the film. And, and that's exactly. where I think that sometimes sometimes he gets in his own way a little bit with that. Yeah, I agree. That, exactly right. That's exactly what I was trying to say and put into words uh, when, you know, like when, when it comes to set pieces, taking precedence, where it's like, it's a great set piece, don't get me wrong, but when, when you act, like, especially on repeat viewings, it becomes very obvious and that is almost immersion. Not necessarily, it doesn't kill immersion, but it sort of takes you out of it temporarily. And uh, and that is, for me, immersion with his films is key. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other, you know, especially the Marvel stuff, uh, you know, like, None of that really feels immersive to me anymore. I think the closest I've become, uh, I've, I've, I've gotten to being immersed in the in the Marvel universe is when it, when you know like the Avengers trilogy was airing. I mean that was generally I think decent, you know, cinema. Uh, but that is I think what set, what sets his films, his superhero films apart. And and to go back to your first question there about you know that may have hindered it perhaps. Yes, I definitely think it did because it is sort of something where you've got this very mature and dark and in your setting that you can relate to and it is something that you want to know more about you kind of want to read into the law and then you've got like the avengers where nothing seems to be ever really at stake and you're just mm. kind of watching holistically from a bird's eye perspective different superheroes battle it out but you know that iron man doesn't die i mean at least until you know you, you as, as marvel obviously progressed you know with with their universes and and, and with the universe in the different phases that that there was a shift there as well, but in in, in the first instance, especially like the last few films that all came out, none of that really feels meaningful to me anymore. Whereas I can go back to the Dark Knight trilogy, and I always go like rave about just how immersive that whole experience is to me, and I think that is where it hindered other movies and genres, but it also very much popular popularized superheroes at a time where it was very much a niche thing to watch. That is, I think, where MCU would have benefited from that long term because all of a sudden people wanted to know about more about Batman. And, you know, like in, in even DC, you know, when it comes to Superman and all the others, all of a sudden those guys weren't just sort of, you know, people anymore that only those that are reading the comics would be able to relate to. All of a sudden th those were real people that you wanted to, you know, just watch them act and play on screen. And I think that is what the Dark and Beautifully um, conceptualized. Um, it, and, uh, it's not 
it's not like the like the MCU movies haven't done some some aspects of it. Like for example, like the one I always fall back on, and the, the one I walked out of the cinema, actually that was actually really good, was um, uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, because it actually yeah. it. For me, that's that's the best film out of out of all that that kind of that kind of generation of, of, of era of you know, MCU because that was also ten felt... years ago, by the way. Yeah, oh jeez, yeah. Um, but that was the one that most felt to me like kind of similar to the Dark Knight in the in the way that it it you know it, it immersed you one, but two. You know, sorry guys, you, I'll be you... I'll be right back. Sorry. No, yeah. Um, but two, as in, like, had you know, uh, had, as you said, something at stake. You know, like, it, it felt it felt like a, like a like a like I, I was on the edge of my seat in that movie, and, and I don't get I don't feel that way often with with you know with with these movies. But that movie, I was like, this is actually really really good. Um, yeah, it's not that it can't happen. It, it's it it's that it 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 happens, but it but when it does, we now that that the dark night happened every movie would just never be as good you know because it was just yeah. like it, it and that's and that's it's been a hindrance in terms of um you know everything else compared to it which, which it should be because it's because it's a phenomenal film but yeah. um it, it's it's you know the fact that people say oh no, it can't happen um kind of kind of puts a precedent for everything like well there's no point in trying to be better than the dark night because we're just not going to be you know and it's and for me that kind of kind of ruins a bit of cinema Right, exactly. And that's exactly, I think it pisses me off even more because MCU sort of knows that now and they just run with their own. And it seems to be popular enough. Obviously, it, it you know, it attracts the masses still and they make billions after billions. And that's fine. I, I definitely, you know, don't want to, uh, you know, criticize that too much because obviously they, they carved themselves a niche and they've found some success with that. And I very much was on board with that, especially in phase one when it came to, you know, even the, the, the likes of Iron Man, just because again, you know, like the casting was on like on point, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and whatnot, like they, they, they all carried that and they carried it really well. So, you know, what Christian Bale was at the time for, for, for Batman and, you know, Heath Ledger for, for the Joker, MCU then was able to, capitalize on that as well with their own sort of uh, range of actors there but it then sort of became something way too formulaic for for the lack of a better word where all of a sudden it was sort of like same old same old been there done that and at this point in time i'm really struggling to understand where they want to take it because it is something where that even if they are perfectly aware of the fact that the dark and there's something that might not necessarily match it would still be a great effort to try and to at least do something that you know hits you like a truck like winter soldier did because mm. that is when it actually did come close and that is when they would have or should have realized hey i, I can do that or we can do that uh in our own version and even if it doesn't necessarily match the highs and the lows or whatever it, it very much had its own uh, appeal and i think that is why a lot of people rightfully so always go back to the winter soldier as the best captain america film because mm. it is you know mature enough it, it adds a whole bunch of sort of uh political context to it and it has a lot of you know themes going on as well it's not just necessarily captain america just you know going to the <laughs> exactly exactly there's so much more to it and i think that is unfortunately what they've lost that is where i thought okay this is the dark night of the mcu let's do it and then after that it went i don't even know what the next film was to be honest which kind of proves yeah. my point uh, <laughs> like, nothing really just you know added on, on on that and so yeah that is where um I guess I can appreciate Christopher Nolan wanting to outdo himself with The Dark Knight Rises. Didn't necessarily the go as planned. It still was a very successful film, uh, but I think it was also good that they kind of left it at that. 
he, he could have he they, they could have milked that franchise and i mean in other ways they've done it you know there have been plenty of batman films since then but like the, the christopher nolan batmans i think he if he asked he would have been able to do like another two trilogies right after that but i'm glad that he didn't because i think he's told his stories and that's enough for the time being yeah. and he went and on to began better things i i completely agree with you i i think like whenever i think of the, the you know batman series like there's two that come to mind like his his trilogy and then like i think uh, um like the the late 80s early 90s kind of kind of kind of ones for me because i mean i grew up with those films you know yeah. um and and it, like the new batman like i i who played the who played recent was it robert pattinson or was he played the one that played the, yes, played the yes, it was him yes the batman um, yeah 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 and it, and it was just like it I, I went in there because it was like, oh, you got to watch it. It's so good. And it just felt like a, it was an hour too long, that movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it was massively, like, yeah, I don't even know. It was three hours or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it felt like it could have it had an hour less and it would have been a complete film. And they just kind of dragged it. Because, because, because again, they were trying to be the, you know, they were trying, oh, well, like, we can, we can, we can redo The Dark Knight again. Um, but it just, it just, it just didn't hit the nail. And I looked at it, I was like, yeah, it was all right. But I was like, Kind of, kind of. With an hour to go, I'm like, I kind of felt bored. I was like, I was like, it's like, this is just, mm. this, you know. Whereas, um, and getting back, getting back to the Winter Soldier is the reason for me that movie is is like is like my favorite movie from from that from that that era is because it you know every moment of that film was 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 perfect like like in in yeah. in. in in my eyes, anyway, they, the way they did it was perfect. It kept me hooked. It, it wasn't too long. It wasn't too short. It just it was perfect time, perfectly timed, um, and you, you know, it just shows that, that you can do it. And you, you, if you tr if you try, and and that's the key word, if you try, and not and not just try to do a cash grab, which which I think are, are what 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 most most movies are in terms in terms of in terms of that that their franchise. And look, don't get me wrong, Endgame and um, Infinity War were, were, were you know were, were really really cool, but um, you know I always if there's one I'm going to see if, if if someone says to me oh, I'll put an MCU movie on I'm like oh, the only the only one I'm going to watch is is um is you know <laughs> the Winter Soldier because it's the one that I, I it's it for, for me it's 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 the it's the um uh, the the Dark Knight of of that of that series and and it's the one I. And, and and it's the one that when I talk to people about it, they're like, yeah, you know what, that movie was 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 good. Like it was, you know, yeah. They all they can all unanimously agree that they reckon that's one one of the best Captain America and two probably the best movie of that of that um, of that franchise. So um, yeah, I it, it can be done. It just it just it, it's they have to they have to take it seriously. I I think personally, and if, if they want these movies to, to be taken seriously, they, they need to they need to do that. They can't yeah. they can't they can't just let it go. You know. Um, but having said that, like w with what Nolan did was was good. I understand what he was trying to do in in, in Rises, but um, but yeah, he's he, he he experiments, and you know what? I can't you can't take that away from him because because like he gets canned for it, and and you know with 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 quite vigor from from a lot of people. But at the end of the day, if no one's pushing the boundaries, we're all going to be producing the same the same movie every single time, right? So. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I kind of don't I, like. I didn't mind Tenet. Like people hate that movie, and 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 I can understand why. But it's for me, it was like, oh yeah, I, I saw what he tried to do. Like it, it didn't pull it off exactly as he probably would have would have hoped. But you know, uh, in 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 the same token, he still he still did something different. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the thing with Tenet for me was that um, he he did, you know, like okay, so yeah, the, I think he's. I think one of his weakest films was Dark Knight Rises and one of the reasons for that was because of decisions he made. And one of the early controversies with the Dark Knight Rises was you couldn't understand what Bane was saying. 
And mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan's sort of artistic, you know, auteur position on that was, was that, well, the reason why I want Bane to be difficult to hear is so that you have to pay attention and focus on what he's saying. So when you get to a movie like Tenant, which, you know, I, 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 I strongly dislike that movie in the cinema and so much so that, you know, it's one of the few times I've actually considered walking out of a film. Like I vehemently disliked that movie when I watched it in IMAX. Um, I rewatched it six months ago with subtitles and it was a much better film, but I needed to rewatch it at home with subtitles to actually appreciate what he was trying to do. And I think it's because that sometimes Nolan kind of gets in his own way with these sort of artistic decisions and trying to push the envelope with what he wants to create. You know, every once in a while, he, you know, he jumps the shark as it were. But sorry, I am, I am conscious of time, Johannes. How, how much time do we have left with you, mate? Oh, I can still go on for like another 20 or so. Okay, cool. Lovely. Because I, I, the next thing I'd like to talk about, guys, is, um, and this is close to your heart, Johannes, which is Christopher Nolan Jesus score. Um, mm. Now, we kind of, we did, a, we did a, a film score podcast a few weeks ago and we, 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 we spoke very heavily around sort of Hans Zimmer and the Nolan films. But uh, I think that Nolan is one of the few directors in uh, around who his film scores may outlive his actual movies. And so I, I wouldn't mind, Johannes, if you want to kind of just kick off and just sort of, how would you kind of describe the role that score plays in Christopher Nolan films? Look, I would go as far as to say that in some films actually drives it. Um, when you think about, and, and, and to be honest, it's not necessarily the score itself, but also the overall sound design. So when you go to something like Dunkirk, Throughout that entire film, you've got that sort of ticking noise. You know, something is sort of like clocking along. You know, time is passing. And for Uh, the longest time, you don't really know what's going on. It's called the shepherd's tone. Well, there you go. I I specifically took a note of that because I I wanted to bring that up. It's called the shepherd's tone. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was looking for because, uh, yeah, you never know. And I had no idea what it was called, but that's exactly what I was referring to because... At some point, when it becomes apparent that there's these, you know, three different timelines and, you know, they all sort of come together, it was all building up to that point mm-hmm. that you then sort of put together the pieces. That same effect, in my opinion, would not have been achieved if it wasn't for the sound design. And that is just, and that is sort of just, you know, like sound design as such. Then you've got the actual score on top of it. Um, and to be honest, for me, Dunkirk, the score is probably not. Um, the most memorable part of that, that's more so the sound design um, that, that really stood out to me. But when it comes to Interstellar, for example, that I think is my all-time favorite score when it comes to any 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 films. Because what Hans Zimmer did there is to, you know, like he, he reinvented himself and that means something because with Hans Zimmer at some point, you know, like people refer to that as sort of Hans Zimmer fatigue. Yeah. You know, it's always epic and grand and he's got the entire orchestra going on and like every single instrument that you can possibly imagine is like going nuts. But with that thing, he he went to the organ and like he like that, that organ really kicks in. And when you sit in IMAX, by the way, it literally like blows you out of this, out of your seats at some points, literally just because of how amazing that that sounds and it all comes together. Uh, but what he did with that with that particular score is sort of something that you know, like when 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 the when it when the countdown's on to you know the, the big launch into space and whatnot, and and, and all of a sudden, you know, like it, it blasts off and the score really comes together. 
that to me encapsulates immersion like no other film. Like it, it really puts you into that spaceship. Like it basically makes you become part of the crew, which is something that is very difficult to pull off other than, you know, it being a documentary essentially. And then again, as they are, you know, like going about their business and they're touched on this foreign planet and, you know, they just walk what seemingly looks like water and all of a sudden, somebody realizes, you know, in the distance, that's not, uh, what was it, like this famous quote, you know, this is not, this is not... Uh, um, Those aren't mountains. This is not mountains, exactly, this is water, and then all of a sudden this massive tsunami is incoming. And then again, the score builds and builds and builds to the point that it is sort of like nail-biting in terms of atmosphere and tension. And again, in Dark Knight, he's done that same thing with, you know, in one of the scenes where the Joker is in Heath Ledger, you know, I think he, he he jumps into a building somewhere and like and, and there's this 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 high pitched noise that becomes increasingly louder and louder and louder and the way he plays around and toys with all these audio effects to then sort of like burst into this into this massive explosion of of, of different elements both visually and in terms of the audio and sound design in general that is where I think the score just makes such a has such a big impact on on his films in general because he and that is why I think to your point about you know Bane being difficult to understand and Tenet completely being over the top when it comes to mm. sort of volume and like uh, dialogue being sort of very hard to listen to, I think that is where he was experimenting to the point where he just wanted you to understand okay what actually is going on right now like am I meant to be listening to all of this am I meant to be understanding all of this or is the sound intentionally mixed in a way that is sort of portraying the chaotic elements of that film and again that's arguably that's a debate that you know you can have uh, another time but i think that is where with him and, and hans zimmer they they have found a dream team there like they they just know what to do when it comes to when it comes to score in general and uh, so that was a bit of a long-winded answer there's so much more to his to his many different films but i think each and every one of them has an, an amazing score not so much the first few you know when it comes to memento insomnia i don't really remember that to be honest uh, but like Inception, I mean, come on, that, that, that on Spotify, I had a look at this before, like tens of millions of, uh, of of listens just to that particular song that is fittingly called Time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I... where he there's the central element of that film is time, but he also makes that the central element of his sound of his of his score. When I used so to when I used to sell thing. headphones, I used to demo Time to people. Yeah, um, and that was how I used to sell all the, those Audio Technica headphones. So if anyone from Audio Technica ever listens to this, you you know those spike in sales and those the early early 2010s are from me at the airport so you're welcome um but i want to and you raise a good point about sound design because there there is a there is a technical difference between score and sound design and you know i think that's something that christopher nolan doesn't actually get enough credit for is uh, you know the technical application of sound design in his movies to further enhance the stakes and, you know, a, a good example you, know, you raised with Dunkirk with, I'm um, sorry, I, I said it, but I forgot exactly what I said. You know, the, the shepherd's horn, which is essentially just a, um, for those that aren't aware, it's kind of as the movie's going, um, as the stakes start to increase, the the tone starts to twirl upwards. And then as it twirls upwards, it, twir- it goes back to the start and then twirls upwards again. So the idea is that the tempo and the pitch and the frequency start to increase as everything kind of culminates together. And, and that's to try to show that there are three separate stories that while they're happening on three different timelines, you know, seven days, one day and 30 minutes, I think is a one hour is the Spitfire one. 
even though they're all happening over different elongations of time, the stakes are still the same for those characters at that specific scene. But I think the best example of that, and probably I think the best part of Interstellar, is that you know on that on that the water planet with the waves, um, there's a clock ticking in the background, and it's it's doing a tick. So the the score and the the sound design of it is it's showing this very sort of like clear sort of ticking noise, which when you're listening to it and you're watching it the first time, you know, it, it's kind of evoking this sense that, you know, they're running out of time and they only have a short window of time to do this. And so it's, it's kind of trying to create pressure, like they're in a dangerous environment and, and the clock's ticking for them before they have to get out. But when you sort of step back and you realize, well, actually, no, each one of those ticks is one year on earth. And so every time the clock ticks, that's a year of their real life fading away and so i i i think that you know christopher nolan is one of the few filmmakers that actually uses sound design in the same way that some would use you know cinematography you know it, it's something that he actually brings into his narrative in a tangible way as part of his films and i i think he needs to get 100 percent props for that because that's you know that's when I started to go back to the start. That's when you start talking about the difference between films and movies and why he is such an incredible filmmaker hmm no, 100%. And that, that to me, I think is what brings it all together. When it comes to him consciously playing and toying with sound, using score to build up dread, tension, excitement, joy, you know, that is something that, you know, he would have, I think, I, I don't even know if it was um, Interstellar, one of his films that was, I think it may have actually been Interstellar, but uh, don't quote me on that. On in, in one of his films, I think, I remember the composer and i believe it would have had it would have to be uh hans zimmer literally having no idea what he was doing at the time all christopher nolan did was essentially say this is the script here's a few you know snippets essentially i want you to create something that fits this so instead of just a composer getting the entire thing shot and edited and you know you just go to work to kind of play you know like almost i don't know create background music he tasked the composer to create the driving element of many scenes without the composer actually having seen the movie or even scenes of the movie. He, he had scripts to work with. He had ideas to work with. He was given free reign. You, you know, he, he, he then chose, you know, like in this case, the organ, he then chose, you know, that ticking noise. He then chose these different elements that thematically all come together to then really elevate that movie. And that I think is where in, in, in when it comes to interstellar in particular, Without the score, I mean, it is still a good film, but it is not a great film, especially towards the end. It sort of falls flat a little bit. The, the, the first half is honestly amazing. Yeah. The second half, not so much in my opinion, but the score still saves it. There's another scene in that film that's called No Time for Docking, where, you know, Matt Diamond flies up and wants to dock on that, on that, on that, on that space station. And again, it builds to this tension all throughout that, that entire, I think it is five to ten minutes, literally just him trying to dock on that thing with uh with uh, uh matthew mcconaughey basically telling him don't do it don't do it and you know as he says that the the score rises and the tension rises and at some point you're literally at the edge of your seat and when you're at the edge of your imax seat then you get blown away when it actually happens because all of a sudden you know all hell breaks loose and i think that is the beauty of him thematically bringing that all together and putting it into an imax format because that is where you then actually feel that sound design design going through your body as well that is like why he i think went overboard with Tenet as well because he wants you to be part of that. He wants you to almost get kicked in the butt 
when there's an explosion happening. When the intent of that bloody 747 crashed into the hangar, you know, where he just casually literally takes a real 747, just goes ballistic, that thing just like shook me to the core. And I think that is intentionally, you know, his, his choice of, you know, making you aware of the situation, becoming immersed. And that is the beauty of it all. Well, um, so Johannes, we have how much time left with you? We might. Uh, yeah, let's move on. Maybe it's a 10 ish, 10, 10 to 15 max. Yeah, no worries. Well, we might, we might start wrapping up then. If that's okay, guys, I'm moving to sort of the conclusion part of it. I mean, Matt, do you have any, yeah. uh, before we move on, any sort of thoughts on score with him and the way he uses sound design? Uh, I completely completely agree with everything that you guys just said. It like it it, it ramps up um, for important parts, and and but it, it does it to the point where you can like it. It's not super intrusive, but you know it's there, and it, and it really kind of um, it again it immerses you, and um, it's not it's not as it, it's not over the top, but it it you know it's it's the little things and those little things add up. You know, you, you, a little thing here, a little thing there, and you know, especially with the score. It's as, as we discussed a few weeks ago. It's a very, very important part of of, of what makes you know a, a good movie great. You, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it's it's a big part to, to 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 elevate something. So yeah, completely agree with with everything that you guys have just mentioned. Oh, thanks, bad. So, um, sort of just to sort of conclude on Christopher Nolan again, just just conscious of time tonight. Um, what do we think that? you know, his, his legacy and his cultural impact is going to be on film. Like, let's say Oppenheimer was, you know, let's hope to God he doesn't, but let's say he drops dead after Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer premieres and that's, that's it. You're, how do you think that history is going to remember Christopher Nolan films? I think they're going to remember him with, sorry, sorry, Giannis. Um, I, I, I think they're going to, I think they're going to remember him with, um, with, I guess like really good, I'm trying to think of trying to think of the word but like really good uh, really good uh, movies um, that kind of changed the way we looked at movies and I, I think he was ahead of his time so they were probably going to look at him as he, he was ahead of, ahead of his time especially with the uh, um, with what he's done with uh, like the Dark Knight Rises series so um, I think he'll be looked at with with rose-colored glasses but but with with good reason fair point and i would add to that not so much thematically but also from a technical point of view you know imax owes him <laughs> straight up owes yeah. him at that point yeah. in time like imax was known for documentaries and i mean I, i'm very much don't doubt for a second that there's a lot of effort that goes into these documentaries but you would go there on a field trip you know like with your colleagues in school or whatever else but IMAX in particular IMAX Melbourne what it is now is in part thanks to him like when I went to that interstellar viewing I've never seen that 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 auditorium literally like every last seat was taken in the in the front row where you would have a headache after you you know after the movie finished and I think that that sort of encapsulates what he's been able to achieve technically you know, like devising new camera formats, devising, playing around with with audio, with uh, with sound design, with a score, um, with close-ups, with different shooting techniques. You know, like there's there's a lot of things that I think students in film schools will study years from now when it comes to things like depth of field, his mm. muted color palettes that he uses. Like all of his films are very much net. I think also was a beautiful choice for The Dark Knight. It wasn't this 
flashy Spider-Man-esque, you know, like bright reds and, 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 and yellows and this and that. It was muted all the way through. And, the, and that same theme sort of like lingers in Inception. And you have got that in Dunkirk again. Dunkirk in particular, that beach, that sand, that, that, that looked, you know, that didn't look like sand at some point because oh, of how yeah. But that is exactly what made this film what, what made this film stand out to me. And I think from a from an artistic point of view and from a technical point of view, that is what people will remember most about his films. If it isn't the story, like it isn't probably the storylines themselves, but how he puts that to work. All of these different things that he uses, these the the, the, the techniques that that he brings together on screen, um, is what you know. 10, 20, 50 years from now, people will probably study that in 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 film school. Uh, to see if that may or may not necessarily help them elevate their own projects. So I think that is where um, he will be very much remembered for. I don't think he's going to be remembered for his dialogue. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, and it kind of, I, I, and the reason why I kind of titled this episode of, you know, he's the millennial Kubrick uh, is because I think that he is going to be remembered more for his visual and cinematic achievements as opposed to his narrative achievements. Um, you know, like if you look at someone like Kubrick and you compare him against like, I don't know, Sidney Lumet, for instance, Sidney Lumet was a far more accomplished, you know, storyteller than Kubrick was. But, mm. you know, Stanley Kubrick had Dr. Strangelove and Sidney Lumet had Failsafe. And Failsafe is an extraordinary film from that same year. And Dr. Strangelove is a absurdist over the top type movie people remember strange love before they remember Failsafe. um mm -hmm. i know sorry that was a very specific reference but i was, I was, I was holding on to that one for a little while um <laughs> i like it what i see, see I, i'm really i'm really conflicted with nolan um because you know as i said i think that he has some of some of my all-time favorite films are christopher nolan films and I remember them partly because of sort of like the cinematic achievement and the pop culture at the time. You know, like The Dark Knight, I remember, you know, 16, whatever I was, going and watching that at, you know, Airport West and then the tram stopped halfway home. So my friend and I had to sort of jog like an hour to get home at one o'clock in the morning because we snuck out to go watch it after work. Um, you know, like I, all of these films, I have like distinct memories of going and seeing them. I remember watching Interstellar with you, Johannes, and Dunkirk, and you know they're, they're just they're, they're great cultural touch points. Um, but they're millennial touch points, so they're they're films that appeal to us because we were, you know, we were the right audience and the right age for when those films came out. I just yeah. don't know whether you know our kids are going to sort of revere them the way that we currently revere them. I, I'm just really, I just don't know if, if he's going to have that sort of legacy because even when you, even when you go back and you rewatch the Dark Knight trilogy now, you know, stylistically, they're very of the time. They're very of that sort of late 2000s, George Bush, Obama, war on terror, espionage, you know, characters are morally gray sort of films which were very you know there's a lot of films around the late 2000s that were cinematically quite similar to dark knight in the story they were trying to tell um and you know if you compare sort of heath ledger's performance against you know um joaquin phoenix's performance with the joker you know that's that's an interesting point of comparison because those two actors both played the same character and both received academy awards for that character 
but Phoenix's performance of the Joker is deeply steeped in contemporary, you know, anarchism. It's mm. it's you know he's effectively a you know disenchanted, you know, psychologically ill anarchist that's kind of what his character performance is and there's sort of a weird sort of sexual depravity to him as well while Heath Ledger's performance was very much you know you you know like I am someone with extreme PTSD going on a rampage because I've seen through the veneer and the BS of society and power comes from those that are willing to take it and so even when you kind of look at sort of the way that these performances are structured, they're very much of their time. And so that's why I kind of, you know, I'm sorry, probably rambling on a little bit with this one, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious as to sort of how popular his films are going to be in the future because they just, they seem to be very much of the moment when they're created. Like even something like Inception, like I don't see Inception having, I, mean, I personally think it's his best film, but I don't see Inception having the same sort of, you know, lasting legacy that, you know, some other movies from that period might have had, like the Marvel films, for instance, because, you know, it's, it, it almost seems too, it, it almost seems too sophisticated for current tastes. Mm. Don't know, but, <laughs> sorry, man. That's the sad part about this whole thing that, you know, that, that it's, what you said there last, you know, too sophisticated, you know, that is where it's almost, we've almost downgraded when it comes to quality in cinema. And I, I would totally agree. I mean, these films are very much productive. And that is why I would double down on, you know, my stance of the, the films themselves may not necessarily go down in history, but the artistic element to them may just do that when it comes to, the things that you don't necessarily talk about when I go, you know, like if, if, when you go to watch anything and, you know, with your mates and you come out, you, you talk about the storyline, the, the acting, the, the themes, the everything else, but no one's going to talk about, you know, what the, what the, what the, how muted the colors were or, you know, like how he was toying with different cinematic techniques you know, depth of field, close-ups versus, you know, like what, what aspect ratio he uses in his in his films. I think that is what behind the scenes will very much continue to form a central point, like a central piece of, of, of cinema history that a lot of up-and-coming movie directors or film directors are going to study one way or another, but they're probably not going to go down into necessarily the storytelling itself. You know, even something like as amazing as The Dark Knight as it is for us, it's not going to age like a Star Wars and it's probably not going to age like a Lawrence of Arabia or a Ben-Hur or whatever, or whatever else. But in my opinion, it doesn't have to do because it's already been groundbreaking enough when it comes to the, the artistic element to it and how that would benefit future de- generations of filmmakers and what they will do with that. And they will obviously then go ahead and, you know, recreate or create their own storylines that are, <clears throat> you know, very much a product of their times, but they may just be based on these cinematic principles that, that you know we've learned from someone like Christopher Nolan, and I think that's the beauty of it all. Uh, and to be honest, it's not just him. You know, Denis Villeneuve, you know, Dennis, um, you know, would fall into that category as well. Not every single one of his films is memorable, but I think most of them are artistic enough that they would be talked about in fifty years 
down the track in, 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 in film school. We'll, we'll definitely do an episode on him because I think that he's probably pound for pound the only other director in presently, before, like the only other director out presently that could go against Christopher Nolan in terms of just successful catalogue. And I actually think that his films are better. I know that's a little bit sacrilegious, but I, I genuinely no, think no. that he's actually no. a better, his catalogue is better than Christopher Nolan's catalogue. Also, I'll put it that way. Um, to be honest, 100% agree. Like yeah. that guy, the, Christopher Nolan, I'm a fan of his films. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but he's, well, by all means, he's he's had some films in there that I do not hold up in terms no. of, you know, what, what you've come to expect from him. But I would argue Denis Veneuve has not had a single average film today. Even his early beginnings, also on D, the French film, highly recommend that. Both indie and, you know, triple A Hollywood, you put him into any genre and he nails it. Like, yeah. not necessarily at the same <clears throat> level of, like, quality or, like, the, at the same degree, but every single one of his films is just absolutely stellar uh, so far anyway he hasn't had i think quite as many uh feature films as christopher nolan had no. so time will tell but so far i think denny Villeneuve is actually already trumping him well i mean just the dune films themselves are like i personally i think that dune is better than any christopher nolan film in the past well most of yeah. christopher nolan's films in the past mm. decade um but anyway so i i do want to do a whole episode on him because like we could, we could do an entire discussion just on how amazing Sicario is. <laughs> like that film was just, oh, right. that film was just staggeringly good. Um, but yeah, so Matt, any, any closing thoughts, mate? Cause I'm conscious that we're going to have to start wrapping up soon. No, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I will agree with you on that. Sicario is a phenomenal film. I just want to put, put that in there. Mm-hmm. I, I generally love that movie. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, everything that you guys have said tonight is like you know, I've got nothing to no no rebuttals or anything about there. I, I I think you guys have yeah have said the right things, um, and and Johannes said like how how he will be remembered. I, I I agree with that as well. Like he 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 was a pusher. He he pushed boundaries, and and you know what? I commend him. So so uh, Nolan, if you listen to us, man, I commend you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. If, if no one's listening to this, I do deeply apologise for my offensive remarks towards your um, your filmmaking credibility. <laughs> um, you're far more talented than I ever hoped to ascertain in my life. So I certainly don't want to be. You know, I certainly don't think I could do your job better than you. That's for sure. But you know, <laughs> tenant. We have to be honest, mate. Tenant was a bit of a misstep. Shots <laughs> fired. Oh, um. Awesome, guys. Well, we might we might wrap it up in there in that case. Now, thank you, Matt and Johannes, both for coming on. Um, I'm not too sure what next week's episode is going to be on. Uh, it's, I think it's going to come kind of come down to who's available. But um, the, there's I, I, I've got two. I want to do two rant episodes. I want to do one on the current state of Marvel, and I want to do one on the current state of Star Wars because I'm extremely angry with how bad both those properties have just evolved into over the last few years so um i might i might do a bit of a round table see who's available over the next couple of weeks but johannes we'll definitely we'll definitely have to get you back um when you when you return from your your jet setting business adventures i'll see um, if i can tune in from europe otherwise uh yeah i'll see you in a few weeks no lovely no thank you so much for coming tonight mate it's always a pleasure and matt thank you as always for joining us as well too anytime thanks man. for having us Take awesome care. all right have a good night guys you too. and you cheers bye-bye so,